We're still in the Alibet Discourse, in case you didn't know. And in our study here, we've been seeing a lot of things related to the culture, and I've been trying to emphasize that uh, many of the things that we have in the Alibet Discourse per se deal with a specific period of time after the period in which we are living in, which we call the Church Age. And the passages that we're going to look at today, even though there's always application that you can draw from any passage. In other words, we should draw applications. So let me explain a little bit of what the distinction between what I've been saying and what an application is. What you do is you study a passage in its context in terms of how it's related not only to the original audience, but also how it's related in terms of God's overall program. And then once you understand how it fits within that overall program and how it fits within the audience that it's written to, for example, the book of First and Second Corinthians are written to a particular group of people that lived in the first century. And Paul is addressing that particular situation. So some little items in there may not be totally applicable to us in terms of the specifics. But yet, we can still draw an application that applies to you and I in the 21st century. So that's the difference. The distinction is that we draw from the historical situation principles that are applicable in any age, at any time, to any people, we can draw those applications and they apply to you and I. And that's the case with things like the Olivet Discourse. Because I've been stressing the Olivet Discourse describes Daniel's 70th week, at least the first part of it, which is yet future. If you are a premillennial, pre-tribulational, futurist... Dispensational, you know, all the things that uh, Linda's already lost track of. <laughs> so, even though it's specific, we can draw applications from it. But an abuse of that is to try to read into passages things that are either not applicable or not relevant in terms of you and I. But you can always draw applications, and we'll do that today as we've done in some of the other passages. Even though it's not specifically written to the church age, we can draw applications that apply to you and I. Is that clear? That's a, some basic hermeneutical principles on how to apply scripture. So you can apply genealogies from the book of Genesis to your life, 21st century, even though Genesis was written thousands of years ago. But you understand the passage, first of all, in terms of who it was written to and what it pertains to in terms of God's overall program. And then you are in a position to draw applications. So let's take a look at what we have been looking at. We're understanding the times, and even though we don't live in the period of the tribulation, Jesus encourages us to understand, well, he encouraged the the uh, Jewish leaders to, or rebuke them for not understanding their times. That's where I get the little praise. So we don't want to follow the pattern of the Jewish leaders. We want to be encouraged by Jesus in understanding the times in which we live in. 
And even though we're not in that period of time, it's not just going to come out of the blue. There may be some events that lead up to it that are not specific to the Olivet Discourse. Make that clear so far? So we want to understand the times and understand that what we have in our culture is very similar to what we can expect, well, not expect, but what uh, the world can anticipate in that seven-year period of time. So we spent a lot of time looking at somewhat of the setting of the Olivet Discourse, which is very important to understand. And now we're looking at this period of time called Tribulation. And we've been going rather, in fact, a lot slower than what I anticipated. We don't have a schedule, do we? Actually, we're, we're hoping that the Lord comes before we finish. <laughs> so we can observe it rather than talk about it. All right? So we're in that period of time, and Jesus describes these early events that he described as the beginning of birth pangs. In other words, things will gradually get worse and worse, more severe, more drastic. And the beginning of birth pangs particularly, I think, deal with the first 14 verses of the Olivet Discourse on a timeline. This is the seven years broken down into two halves, because that's what Daniel does, that's what the book of Revelation does breaks it into two parts. And I think what Jesus is describing, even though he doesn't spell out the chronology, he, I think, is describing the beginning that will proceed throughout the seven years. In fact, these birth pangs will, in fact, persist as time goes on through that seven-year period of time. And then there's going to be other things that take place. The second three and a half we'll look at in uh, the Olivet Discourse as well. So we're looking at the beginning of birth pangs. We've seen the deception of false Christs, four and five, and again, specific to that period of time, even though there have always been false Christs. And the Bible gives that in another passage, in terms of church age even, but the Olivet Discourse deals with the seven years. We saw destruction of different disasters, some of them man-made as a result of wars and rumors of wars. Some of them earthquakes, natural disasters, famines, pestilence, etc. We saw that there's going to be persecution, but there's going to be a deliverance of those that are persecuted. And one of the ways that God delivers is by taking them out of the world. They're martyred. A lot of martyrdom. We're going to talk a little bit more about that. And we saw that uh, people turn on one another, the downfall of many, verse 10. And last time we looked at the deception of false prophets, different from false Christs. Related, but slightly different, so we drew that distinction. And today we want to look at the deadening of culture. And you might even think that it describes current conditions, and in fact it does. Even though it is specific to the Great Tribulation, there are a lot of parallels in the culture in which we live in, and we'll draw that as an application as well. And verse 12, this is where we left off. Because lawlessness, now this is in that specific period of time, if you think lawlessness is out of hand today, just imagine that magnified during the seven-year period of Tribulation. Lawlessness is increased, and the byproduct of that, most people's love will grow cold. In other words, people will be in survival mode, 
won't be interested in helping others because they're trying to help themselves, trying to defend themselves, trying to just basically survive. So lawlessness is increased. Now that word is very interesting because it's used very specifically in describing this period of time not only as a general condition, but that is actually even a title that is associated with a particular individual during the seven-year period of time. And we'll look at that verse in a moment here. But in general, the word lawless, and for those of you, where's our Greek fellow? He's not here today. Some of you know a little bit of Greek. Anamia is lawless. Does anyone recognize two parts of that word? Exactly. It starts with an alpha. And remember, oftentimes nouns that start... Very good, Jeremy. It start with an alpha. Negate. It's like in English we use the word un to negate something. Well, similarly, in the Greek language, if you put an alpha or the equivalent a, uh, it negates something. So what's the other part? So nomia or nomas, namas. Nope, not name. Very common word in the New Testament referring to things in the Old Testament. Anyone know? You can figure it out from the English word. Law. <laughs> trick. Nope, trick question. <laughs> right? Do a trick question. So, namas is law, and it's frequent. It occurs quite a bit in the New Testament. Most of the time it's referring to the law, but it's used in a lot of ways in the New Testament. Can you think of a few ways that it might be used in the New Testament? Anyone? First of all, first. Refers to the Mosaic law specifically. It can refer to the Ten Commandments. Sometimes it can refer in a context with another word, law and prophets a portion of the Old Testament, law and prophets, and sometimes law and prophets and writings. So it occurs quite a bit in the New Testament. Sometimes even like in the book of Romans, it refers to just the concept of like a principle, a law, like a spiritual law, the law of faith in uh, Romans chapter 3, or the law of works, kind of a principle. So it's a very common word in the New Testament. And if you put the alpha before it, anamia, lawlessness, kind of a condition, situation. It also occurs, I'm going to show you a verse, anamas, a lawless one, referring more to a personage, a lawless one that has the characteristic of lawlessness. So these words occur in the New Testament. And in 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 3 and 4, this is the same context as the Olivet Discourse, and the Thessalonians were afraid that maybe they missed the rapture. Maybe they were already missing something in terms of eschatology. Paul is writing them and saying, let no one in any way deceive you. In other words, certain things have to take place before the day of the Lord, probably referring to this tribulation period and or the second coming itself. The day of the Lord is used kind of to describe most of those events surrounding the second coming. 
could even include the millennial kingdom. So, let no one deceive you, for it will not come, and if you look at the preceding, the day of the Lord will not come unless the apostasy comes first. What's that? And in this context, Paul is referring to what apostasy? That's a description of it. It's a abandoning of truth, abandoning of one's faith or one's belief system. But this is describing something in terms of future, from the first century at least, that Paul saying will precede the day of the Lord. I think in this context, Paul is referring to the church age, which will end not in a post-millennial optimistic situation, but the church age is going to end in apostasy. In other words, lots of false doctrine, abandonment of scripture, abandonment of truth, denial of things like the Trinity, denial of the uh, deity of Christ, those kinds of things. That's where the church is going to end. It's going to precede the day of the Lord. And the man of lawlessness, there you go, the man that is characterized by lawlessness, that's his character. Now who is that? That is the Antichrist. There will be many, but there's going to be one that is prominent above all else. We're going to talk some more about that in verse 15. In fact, I'm going to give you a little background on verse 15. Not today, but when we get there. So, the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, another uh, descriptive phrase of him. And this is part of the tribulation period, a period of great destruction. He's going to be the author of much of it, particularly those that believe in Jesus Christ. Most of them will die. Verse 4, we're going to look at this, when we we're going to come back to verse 4 when we look at verse 15, but since it's in the same context, let me just read it real quick who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God. He's going to be the top of the pantheon, if you will, of false gods, false religion. And in fact, he's going to be so bold as to uh, make himself an object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. He's going to claim to be God himself. I think that is what we have in verse 15, just to kind of give you a preview of what we have. That event. And that event, there's going to be a particular event in the middle of that seven-year period. Remember, Daniel spells that out. Jesus calls attention to it, and he refers back to Daniel. This is the kind of the parallel passage along with it. 7 and 8, later on, in the same context, Second Thessalonians 2, for the mystery of lawlessness, in other words, this condition of lawlessness is already at work. In other words, you can see it in the church age. It's not exclusive to that seven-year period of time. It's just that in that seven-year period of time, it's going to be to the ultimate. It's already at work. So we can expect it in our culture. Only he who now restrains, probably a reference to the Holy Spirit, will do so until he is taken out of the way. Now, I understand that is the Holy Spirit, when the church is removed, the indwelling presence amongst the body of Christ will leave in that same sense 
Now the Holy Spirit is omnipresent, so never ultimately and totally leaves, but in that indwelling sense, along with the rapture, I believe the Holy Spirit is going to operate differently during that period of tribulation. It's going to be similar to the operation of the Spirit during the in the Old Testament era, before Pentecost, before everything changed in the church age. Jenny? No, absolutely not. Just know how to deal with it, not be caught off guard or surprised or shaken by it. Yeah, exactly. In fact, all of these events that we've been talking about. For the first previous temple of God, Yes. No, 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 no. Don't be a non-millennialist. <laughs> That's the implication. There'll be a temple. In fact, I'm going to talk about that. There will be a temple during this seven-year period of time. And I'll give you more detail on that later on. Good observation, though. There will be a temple to, in order for all of these events to take place. That's part of what we'll deal with in uh, verse 15. Back to 7 and 8, then in verse 8, then that lawless one, there's Anamas. See the two words there? Will be revealed. He won't be revealed until that period of time. Whom the Lord will slay. Here's the outcome. The Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring an end to an end by the appearance of his coming. In other words, the second coming of Jesus Christ is going to do away with that lawless one. There's going to be an end. And the Alvet Discourse talks about that as well. This is a parallel passage in Paul describing some of the th- same things in broad strokes that Jesus is dealing with in the Alvet Discourse. And we've said the Alvet Discourse is a brief summary of the book of Revelation. And I've given you some of those parallels. Okay. So, verse 12, because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. I think this is the deadening of a culture. The result of lawlessness is that it destroys culture. And I think we see some of these things happening in our culture today. Because lawlessness increased, most people's love will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Here's a good passage if you want to use salvation by works. If you want to defend that doctrine, there you go. There you have it. Here's a text that you can use as a proof text. What's the problem with that? Well, when you're uh, like eight years old and you're saved, you don't know you're saved when you die. It's or something, right? What? <laughs> I mean, if that's the test of being saved, we don't know we're saved because we haven't endured Oh, we haven't endured yet. Okay. The one who endures to the end will be saved. Keep the context in mind. Remember, context is key. Context determines meaning. Context is during a period where people's lives are going to be in jeopardy. And what you need is endurance. Jim, uh, yeah, Jim. Yes. Right. Yes, I would agree. Yep. Right. Yeah, good point. Well, I think it's it includes that, but it would include more than that. In other words, it's just endurance. 
We're talking about survival mode. And I think what he's talking about, don't get thrown out by the word salvation, for example. I'm gonna, in fact, I'm gonna go over that again. You've seen this before. But we have an enduring aspect. In other words, he's talking to that new generation of believers that are gonna be in survival mode. Most of them will be martyred. Most of them will not survive. But there will be a salvation and the key to that will be enduring. In other words, you'll just have to grind it out and let things progress, be a testimony. In other words, you're different. You're part of the counterculture of that seven-year period of time. You are enduring, and as you do, some of you will survive. And I think that's the essence of what he's talking about. So he will be saved. No, no. He's not talking about eternal life. That's the mistake that a lot of people make whenever they see the word sozo, whenever they see the word, the noun form relating to salvation, immediately their mind jumps. Oh, okay, this is eternal life. This is salvation for from uh, the penalty of sin, salvation in terms of getting out of hell, that sort of thing. It's not used that way in every context, remember? It's my understanding that the word, that word refers to deliverance. So the basic, more than one sense of being saved. The basic sense, in fact, what have I said about every theological word that you can find in the Bible? Every theological word? Well, every word has more than one meaning, but every theological word in the Bible comes from just everyday living, comes out of the culture. Every word, every virtually every theological word. In other words, the New Testament or the Old Testament didn't invent new words for theological concepts. And that's illustrated by the word uh, salvation. In fact, salvation just simply means... You can be saved, Paul and the people on the, the ship in Acts chapter 17 were saved from the storm. It had nothing to do with their eternal destiny. That's the basic meaning, and it's used a lot of times in the Old Testament to be saved in battle. In other words, you survive the war. That's the basic meaning. That was the everyday meaning. Now, that word is used and given theological meaning, and in the New Testament, you can find usages where it is referring to a past situation in terms of a salvation. This is the common meaning. But don't assume that it always means that in every context. Another word that Paul uses is justification. In other words, this is salvation from the penalty of sin. This is eternal life. That's only one way the word is used. And by the way, it's not even the majority way the word is used in uh, in the Bible. We've done this before. We've seen this in other... We saw this very commonly in the book of Hebrews. Remember we saw in the book of Hebrews, the word salvation, more often than not, is used in a third sense. The second sense, it refers to a future salvation. We can call that glorification. In other words, when we are totally removed from sin... It's a salvation from the very presence of sin. And I could give you bunches of verses on these. Study First Peter chapter 1 where you have almost, well, you have all three of the senses there. 
And then, if you have a past, and if you have a future, and you have a present, then you can anticipate that there's an ongoing salvation, and there are a lot of verses that pertain to that way that the word is used. For example, Philippians, work out your salvation. Are we to work our salvation out in terms of justification? No, he's talking about sanctification. And in that sense, it's saving from the power of every day. Sanctification. So the word can be used in the sense of justification, and some people just jump to that automatically every time they see the word in the Bible. But there are some usages where it refers to a future salvation that we still haven't experienced, you and I today, but there's also this ongoing sanctification. In fact, in the book of Hebrews, this third sense is used probably more often than any of the others. And then, in a final way, in a physical, phys- from physical deliverance, that is how it's used here in uh, the Alvet Discourse in verse 13. Or, what is it? 12? 12 is it? Hi. Um, I remember when, uh, well, I believe that Jesus here Safe, right, but then the on you That's the ongoing sense. There's an ongoing sense. In fact, Peter, Peter in his books calls it the salvation of the soul. In other words, it's an ongoing preserving, an ongoing battle with sin and having a salvation or a power over it. Yeah, it's like a, a, you don't have to have it like. Well, you go up and down. In other words, you have battles and you lose yeah. some and you win some. You want to win as many as you can. But there's also that future sense. But the basic, everyday sense is this physical sense. That's how it's used in this context. Okay, let's apply this passage. I think we can see in our culture a deadening of the culture as a result of a lot of forces working against us, if you will. I've got a list of them here, and we'll do this quickly because I want to get into verse 14 here. A lot of it stems from banning God in many areas of the culture. Public schools, for one, we've taken God out of there. They become totally secularized. You see the effects of that. But... There are forces that are moving to remove God from the public square in general. I think that's the beginning of a deadening of a culture. So we're many years down the road already. Does that describe America? That's why I use a little image of the Statue of Liberty there. In disgrace. Incre- this increases lawlessness. And you see that. In fact, there's a lot of stuff on the internet. You know, we ban God, da 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 da. So, you know, why do we? Why are we surprised that there's massacres on the schools and that sort of thing? Lawlessness, increased lawlessness, and it's not just criminal activity, but you see it in corruption in business, corruption in uh, government, particularly. In fact, we see it very evidently in our government. Use leading to the use of illegal drugs, that's lawlessness, a form of lawlessness, which is very prevalent in our culture. This deadens people's not only love, just deadens everything. Deadens their thinking, deadens their attitudes, and certainly spiritually evidence of deadness there. Legalizing uh, legalizing abortion in 73, 
cheapened life, not only cheapened life, but gave new attitudes towards life, along with other forces as well. These are all elements in our culture that I think are evidence of not only lawlessness, but the product of it, and the lack of love as a result. Love for life itself. Perversion of morals, you see that all over. Uh, The media, uh, Hollywood certainly, and just your neighbor, if you will. Perversion of all kinds of morals, obsession with pornography and sex, etc., Sixthly, promotion of greed. Some of you young people, you probably don't know this, but not too long ago, gambling was a sin. Did you know that? <laughs> Today, it is uh, kind of almost, uh, what? Yeah, well, it is sponsored by the government. It's but a way of giving to education. Yeah, it's a way of giving to education. Good, so, yeah, good way of viewing it. Yeah. <laughs> but it's a tax. But it's promoting the idea of greed. <laughs> Corruption of education as a result of removing God now and Ten Commandments and anything spiritual, the whole system is corrupted in terms of the ideas that are propagated. That's why evolution is considered science, which evolution is a lie, if you know the facts. Eight, glamorizing, this is more recent, glamorizing same-sex unions and even the legalizing of marriage in these areas. So that's a whole area. You think our culture is on the verge of being dead? Certainly deadened. Well, imagine that and multiply all that, and you can get the picture of what we have during that seven-year period of time. Connie. Just imagine, uh, and by the way, we'll give you an opportunity to come forward and confess your sin, as you already did. (laughs) But imagine all of these multiplied, and you'll get a sense of what it'll be like in that period, particularly when people are in survival mode. The indwelling of the Spirit, right, is God. Yes. I mean, it's it's up. Right. People will be believers, but they won't have the same relationship with the Holy Spirit until there'll be a reinstituting of the new covenant, or an extending of it, however you want to view that. We'll talk some more about that. Okay, well, this is just a way of viewing our culture. Let's close by looking at verse 14, very, very important verse. And also I want to kind of alert you, because this is a, a verse that I think is misused, Because they don't make the distinction between an application and the interpreting of the passage. So let's properly interpret it in its context. And then we'll be in a position to be able to apply it as well. So we're going to have a declaring of the gospel, verse 14. And you notice I've alliterated here. So we have all these. Declaring of the kingdom gospel. Verse 14, this gospel of the kingdom. Now, first of all, context. What is the book that this occurs in? 
Matthew's Gospel. What's the main theme of Matthew's Gospel? The coming of the King and the kingdom that he will bring in the kingdom. Alright? Now there's not many Gospels. There's not a, the Gospel of the kingdom is not different from the Gospel of salvation, if you will. But there are certain emphases in different areas. And in the case of the Gospel of the kingdom, this is what Jesus preached. This is what John the Baptist announced. They announced the coming of the kingdom because the king was at hand. Behold, the kingdom of God is at hand because the king is amongst us. Now the king came to bring that salvation that we are familiar with, but in uh, the ministry of Jesus, he emphasized the entrance into the kingdom as a result of that salvation. We think in terms of the salvation and sometimes forget about the results of it, which is going to result also in the kingdom. It's not just eternal life, but it's a place in the kingdom itself. And during the tribulation, I think that's going to be the emphasis because people will be confronted with the coming of the king. The coming of the king. We're talking about the second coming. So we're going to have uh, another preparation for the coming of the king and the fact that people need to trust in him by faith alone, not by works, in order to not only have the salvation that comes with trusting in the king, but also a position and place in the kingdom itself when the king arrives. So that's the first thing to note here is the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world. Now, I think it's real common amongst some mission organizations, some mission groups, and I remember it from the college days, Campus Crusade made a big point out of, we need to present the gospel because the Lord's not going to come until the whole world is evangelized. Well, I think it's a misinterpreting of the passage. Now, we should certainly be presenting the gospel to the whole world as fervently as we can. That's an application. But where this passage falls, it falls in that seven-year period of time, and during that period of time, the gospel of the kingdom is going to be preached in the whole world. That is when the whole world will be reached. The whole world may not be reached before the rapture. The rapture could occur at any time. So the rapture is not awaiting us to evangelize the world. Does that make sense? The rapture could occur before we get done today. In fact, probably most certainly before we finish this series. Right? <laughs> All right. And the world is not totally evangelized. That's why we have uh, mission organizations, uh, New Tribes and Good Seed and all the others that we support and encourage and we send out missionaries. Because we're in the process of that. And this part of the, the Great Commission is to reach as many people as we can, and if possible, the world. But it's not delaying the rapture or the second coming. This is within the same context of all of the verses we've been looking at. So, there's different evangelism views. The preterists believe that this was fulfilled in the first century, like many of the other events. We've talked about that. There's also the historicists, which would say that this is fulfilled in the church age. And a lot of mission organizations take that position 
And it comes out of that school of thought, the historicist interpretation, which I've given you some of the weaknesses of that as well. But I think it, uh, if you're consistent in your futurist interpretation, and if you're, like Linda says, a pre-me, or pre-mill, or if you're pre-trib, then it is during the tribulation period. That's the context of this passage. Make sense? So this gospel we preach to the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. Now, even that itself eliminates the preterist viewpoint. Because the gospel didn't go out. It went out throughout the Roman Empire, but it didn't go beyond the Roman Empire in the first century. And certainly not before 70 AD. And again, the historicist is optimistic in hoping that we can reach the whole world before the Lord returns. Testimony to all the nations. How is this accomplished? Now let me review some of this and uh, take it one step further. What is accomplished during this gospel presentation, during that seven-year period, it gives opportunity for all to be able to hear the gospel. The assumption is, is during that seven-year period of time, there's going to be some people that have not never heard the gospel. And people not just in remote areas. But there are people today, because the church has been so weakened, there are people in America today that have never heard the gospel. Or at least a clear, accurate presentation of it. And certainly during that seven-year period of time, when there are no Christians, they're all taken out, the church is removed, people are going to need to hear a fresh presentation of the gospel. The second thing that is accomplished is this will produce the greatest revival that the world has ever seen. We see evidence of that in the book of Revelation, and I think some hints of it even in the Olivet Discourse. Let me describe that. Remember we saw... The greatest revival starts with whom? In other words, what kicks off the evangelism of the seven-year tribulation period? Does anybody remember? Two witnesses. At least this is the chronology that fits best, I think, that are described in Revelation 11. Jesus doesn't include them in the Olivet Discourse. He just kind of gives us some of the results. So we have two, two prophets or two witnesses, Revelation 11, 3, and 13, we read those verses. And what will happen as a result of these two Old Testament prophets proclaiming the coming of the kingdom and the coming of Messiah and pointing back that Jesus is that Messiah, what happens? Remember? Well, not quite. Not yet. Well, not quite. 144,000 respond. Remember that? Revelation chapter 7, the first seven verses. And remember, that takes place, they are sealed at the beginning. So we have 144,000 responses. Did Billy Graham ever have 144,000 respond at one time? Well, they will respond as a result of the preaching of these two prophets. If you read the book of Revelation and some parallel passages, they are 144,000 Billy Grahams that go out into the world. Their main mission is to evangelize. And they will produce a result of a mass conversion of lots of people. They're Jewish. They're Jewish. Yeah, they're Jewish. 12,000 from each tribe. 
Very good. Yeah. In fact, the prophets, they're Jewish. Isn't that clever that God scattered the Jews so they're in every culture, they know the lay culture? Yeah, God is so clever, isn't he? <laughs> I mean, really, though. Yeah. The exile was... That's right. He is. He's amazed. He amazes us with his cleverness. <laughs> but Linda's right. The dispersion has placed Jews all over the world that, like she says, knows the culture, knows the language, knows the people. They will evangelize. And you might turn, because I'd like to close in Revelation chapter 7. Uh, I showed you this before. During this first three years, we have the two witnesses at the very beginning. And we have a chronology given to us in uh, Revelation 11. The result is 144,000 respond immediately. And turn to Revelation 14. I want to look at it first. Somebody read 14, 6, and 7. This is an interesting tool that our clever God will use during the Great Tribulation. Part of his cleverness. You got it? Okay, Revelation 14, read 6 and 7. Now, in chapter 14, we have like little snapshots. They're not necessarily in chronological order. We have little snapshots of lots of things that take place during this period of time. One of them, read 6 and 7. Okay, there's lots of angels in the book of Revelation. Some of them are the instruments of judgment. And here's a different one, another one. The everlasting gospel, the unchanging, eternal gospel. Jesus calls it the gospel of the kingdom. And what's he going to do with that gospel? Every, he must be a member of crew or the old campus crusade. He's going to preach to whom? Every nation, every tribe. So it's going to go beyond Israel. Keep reading. An angel is going to evangelize. Just imagine the power of an angel. You have 144 witnesses all over the world, and now you have an angel that's going to proclaim this gospel during this period of time. That's going to result in mass conversions. That is the only positive of this period of time, these conversions. Everything else is going to be pretty devastating. In fact, most of those Christians... Now, who's got uh, Revelation 7-9? We're going to read it in a moment. Somebody want to... Who's got it? Okay, hang on to it there. That's going to result... Somebody else look up Romans 11. That's going to result in Israel. This is, this is where Israel as a nation is converted. This is the fulfillment of what Paul predicts in Romans 11. Who wants to do that one? Go ahead. Got it? I want you to be ignorant of this mystery which the sisters may not be conceded. Israel has experienced a hardening in part of the whole number Okay, until a full number of Gentiles has come in, there's a hardening. I think he's referring to the church age, where the gospel goes to all of the nations, predominantly Gentiles. In that period, there's a hardening of Israel. And then what happens? And in this way, all Israel will be saved. All Israel will be saved. Now, not every single Jew, but all Israel as a body, as a nation. In other words, the predominant 
response will be a national response of believing in Messiah. It takes place during this period of time. Keep reading. The Deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sin. That's the new covenant. Reinstituted during this period of time. We'll talk some more about that later. Israel. This is Israel's conversion. That is one of the main purposes of this seven-year tribulation. And then Revelation 7-9, Gentiles. Who's got, you got it, uh, who had it? Ginny? A great multitude that no one could count. That's why I call it the greatest revival of all time. Okay, so they're before the throne. That means they're dead. That means they're martyred. But notice the number. You could, could even count them. So many that they could not even be counted. The greatest revival that the world will ever see during this seven-year period of time. And if you want to chart it, you have the two witnesses. You have 144,000. You have this angel. And then the result of that is mass conversion. Closing thought here. In a lawless culture, which we live in, we will have many opportunities to share the gospel. And we need to share the gospel today to help people avoid that seven-year period of time. Somebody close for us in prayer. Jenny. In Jesus' name.